I would do my farm chores in the morning, teach all day, and I would come home and check on the cattle, rotate them if I need to, um, and all that. In the summer times, it was easier too because oftentimes I didn't teach in the summertime, so it was a good balance doing that. But the sad part about it is that we hear many farmers, we have to have another job or even another job after that to make a go of it. Hey, I'm Corey. Welcome back to the GrassCast. This is Stories on Pasture, stories from the grazing community about their experiences, getting started, and going forward. This week, we're talking to John Lee. He's a farmer, an educator, an artist, all-around super talented guy, and he raises beef at Lee Farms. This is the first interview on this feed that took place during the pandemic. That means John and I spoke over the phone back in June. You'll notice the audio quality is kind of different. That's why we're trying to make the best of this situation that we all find ourselves in. Thanks for sticking with us. Anyway, John and I first connected to talk about the Wisconsin Grassfed Beef Co-op. But it turns out that he had a much bigger story to share. So on this week's episode, You'll hear from John as he talks about all the things he's done to keep his farm afloat. We're talking multiple jobs, lots of jobs. This is a story that weaves his experience of the past with what he imagines and expects for the future, why he wanted to leave the farm, and what he hopes his children will do when his time comes to retire. I'll let John take it from here. My name is John Lee. I am 53 years old. I was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and grew up on a dairy farm my whole life. We raised tobacco. We had Guernsey and Jersey milking cows, 25 to 30, with young stock. We harvested our own corn. We harvested our own hay. As a child, there were plenty of things for me to do. I never was bored with farm work. I started milking when I was 12 years old. It was a lot of work. It was a busy time, very enjoyable time as a childhood to grow up on a farm. And as much as John enjoyed his childhood on the farm, he knew that he wanted to leave. I went to school locally. I went to college in La Crosse, which is 15 minutes away. I went to technical school for a year and decided that it maybe wasn't for me at that stage of my life. So I decided to travel on the road as a traveling portrait photographer for several years. I saw the writing on the wall that it wasn't going to be a career for me. So I decided that I really wanted to be a teacher all my life. And kind of the just of it was my father really wanted me to be on the farm and farming, but I also saw all of the work that he had to do and all the struggles that he had. And I thought, I don't want to really be milking cows the rest of my life, so I thought I, I better get an education first so I have a backup, just in case, because you never know. So I went to the University of Wisconsin and, and got a few degrees, uh, one in education, special education, and also photography. 
This is normal, right? That moment in young adulthood when people try to figure out who they are and what they're going to be? So I went overseas for my first teaching job full-time and worked for Mobile Oil for a couple years and then went on to working for an agricultural institute, the International Race Research Institute, as a teacher there for several years. During that time, my mind was always on the farm and what my father was doing. I never left the farm. I, I would come home from my overseas trips. And again, my father always was really wanting me to be on the farm and take over the farm life. But I also I realized that wasn't the money that one needs to buy because you don't make a lot of money doing farming. That's how John spent his 20s. He taught. He traveled. He also got married, started a family of his own. He was away from the farm, and that was hard, especially for his dad. We'll come back to this later, but for now. So when I was overseas, my second tour of the Race Research Institute, in the second part of the contract, my father died and then my wife's father died. So we had real hard decisions to make, but we decided that we better get home to tend to the business of the farms. So we left our great jobs in Asia and came back home. And I knew that I wasn't going to be milking cows. I didn't really want to. And the infrastructure probably wasn't really that great either because my father was older and things were kind of let go a little bit. So I decided that if I got into beef farming, that might be an option that I wouldn't have to be tied to milking cows in the morning and night. I could still teach if I wanted to. So I ended up getting a job as a local school teacher in Wisconsin as an art teacher teaching uh, photography and ceramics. So I did that for several years while I was building my beef herd. So it might sound like this is a best of both worlds kind of situation. I mean, yes, the tragedy of losing a parent, that is so hard. But John's back on the home farm and he's teaching. That's got to be some sort of silver lining. So I just kept growing the herd, and I have about 50 animals now. They started out with two. But during that time, I'm teaching. I'm full-time teaching. I'm full-time farming, which was a lot. Anyway, morphing into what I'm doing now, I'm still teaching, but I'm substitute teaching. So if I don't have fencing or hay harvest or farming of some sort to do than I'm teaching. That definitely sounds like a lot to me. But also, John is not alone. As in, he's not the only person that's ever tried to figure out this sort of balance. Most of the people that I know that are farming, they have another job. Because the farming income, for the most part, is never going to pay the bills. When we decided to come back... As I said before, I wasn't interested in milking. I had done that. I I knew that there wasn't a whole lot of money in that. I couldn't probably milk and teach at the same time. I needed to have another income. I have other farmer friends that, that one's a farmer. He's a beef farmer, and he's also an electrician. I know another farmer who's a beef farmer, and he's a business consultant. And I know another farmer who... Is a farmer of beef, and he runs a um, a rental property company. So for me, I knew 
that if I was coming back here, I needed to also have an alternate income, and I needed to have something that I could do that wouldn't require, you know, morning and night milking while I'm teaching also. I would do my farm chores in the morning, teach all day, and I would come home and check on the cattle, rotate them if I need to, um, and all that. In the summer times, it was easier, too, because oftentimes I didn't teach in the summertime, so it was a good balance doing that. But the sad part about it is that we hear many farmers, we have to have another job or even another job after that to make a go of it. And in a lot of cases, you think about, um, you know, the work that people do to make a go of it. And it's sad because there are professions that you have that are just dismally paying professions, you know, teaching, farming are two of them, you know, and then you can lump in other professions as just, you're just absolutely scratching by, by doing what you're doing. But at the same time, you're really loving what you're doing. And I have so many people that I know they are so miserable in their jobs. They just hate their jobs, but I love my job. And okay, although I'm making scratching by income, I still love my job. I love what I'm doing. I believe in what I'm doing. What does it really mean to love what you're doing, but just barely be scratching by? You're killing yourself on the farm. You really are putting in 12, 14-hour days very often and um, always trying to find ways to new things maybe to try to supplement income on the farm. This year, for the second year, we're raising on a small patch of the land, also raising um, hemp. This isn't something new. These crops that come along in my father's generation, my grandfather's generation, my great-grandfather's generation, they did the same thing. They found supplemental things to do for income. So one of those crops was tobacco. Tobacco was a crop that was started here in the in the 1890s on our farm and then was raised for about 100 years. That was a supplemental income. That was the income that the farmers did a few acres of. They got extra money for it. Maybe they were able to buy some updated equipment. Maybe they were able to pay the taxes with it. Maybe they were able to help the kids out with their educations like that. But there aren't many opportunities for farmers these days with that type of thing. You really have to think about what can I do on the land that's conservation-minded, but also something that I can make some money on to pay some bills. Just to be clear, this is often a cash flow kind of issue. And it's the sort of thing that John still deals with today. So we've done some creative things on a farm. We raised pumpkins for several years, and that brought income in. We sold hay to people as an alternate source of income. We've also raised hemp for a couple years. And none of them have been really great money makers, but at least they help pay the bills. And in this situation now, in, in these times, because of the drought, our production of hay is probably 50% down from what it was last year. So then you have to buy hay, which I probably will end up having to buy some hay to support the animals that I have. So it's not a good situation in that regard because you're you're buying expensive feed but you still want to keep your animals, so you have that dilemma that you don't want to sell you want to sell some of your animals. You may sell your feeders, you may sell your calves, but you still have your, your stock cows, your breeder cows. So the dilemma is nowadays the feed is expensive, 
and the cows go through quite a bit of feed. And if a round bale is, um, you know, between 50 and $100 a bale, they'll go through 50 or $100 a bale a day in feed. And if you're substitute teaching, in this particular area, sub-teachers are getting, in some schools, between 70 and $120. So you almost have to sub in the winter months, especially, to be able to buy the feed to feed your animals. Right. So a day's work as a substitute teacher, that lets John buy his cattle feed for the same day. Not really much more. I mean, wow. Let's just stop and think about that. Or you just sell your animals. So that's one thing that's on my mind now as far as uh, what what am I going to do? How am I going to downsize? Do I have to buy feed? Where am I buying feed? There are always these little stressors that come into the picture that gets you creative. You know, as a farmer, farmers are very creative because they have, out of desperation, they, they need to come up with solutions to problems they have, and there's not really people advising you what to do. You have your own situation and your own story to tell, and you kind of have to think about what's the best for for your story. <laughs> At this point, you've probably realized that John's story is kind of just a lot of doing a lot of things. Uh, I also do um, wedding photography and portrait photography, and I do some newspaper photography that I get money from. I also write for a magazine and sell photos to that magazine as another source of income. Another source of income that I have is I have a, a pottery business, and I will do about six shows a year selling pottery bowls, mugs, trays, functional pottery wares. Also, you're always looking for opportunities to make more money somewhere else. I mean, if, if somebody wants help picking corn or, or fencing or sometimes lawn mowing work, like that type of stuff, I'm not opposed to doing any of those extra things because sometimes you have to really find other sources to go with. Again, these are real cash flow challenges. And? In sometimes dire cases where there's not a whole lot of money coming in. Well, you can always sell an animal or two. I mean, if you're behind in your mortgage or something like that, which I've sold um, calves before, and that's maybe gone to the mortgage. I also have a couple rental properties that really help out, um, and that is something that has been developing over the past several years in that um, I've used some of the money from other endeavors to put into some rental properties, and that basically that pays the mortgage. My two rental properties pays my mortgage. There are always these expenses that that present themselves, and again, the guy has to really think about uh, where where is the money coming? Where am I paying this bill? Where am I paying that bill from? So remember when I said we were going to come back to that bit about John leaving the farm and his dad's disappointment? In case you don't. But my father was upset that I was leaving to go overseas. I think he realized that the opportunity was great for me, but he did say to me before I left that, well, I'll probably be, I'll probably be dead when you come back, which is, you know, in, in a way it's, um, you know, it tugs at your heartstring, but at the same time, 
um, I understood that his his passion for farming and being around here, uh, he really wanted to see me, especially because I was the only boy and the only sibling that was interested in the farm. He really wanted me to stay. And when I told him that I had renewed my second contract, he went, uh, you know, like, uh, can't you come home and be here again with us? And, and I also realized that there would be a time for that. John now finds himself in the same position as his father. He's got kids, and they could be at that time where they're ready to up and leave. But anyway, you hope down the road that your family, your children, you hope that they have children and they have, you have grandchildren and the, the legacy can continue. This farm was started in 1898, so it's been basically five generations of people that have lived here and worked the land. And hope that I hope that continues, too, because, unfortunately, there aren't too many century farms these days, and it seems often enough around here, at least, that there seems to be more building of houses and, and less preservation of farmland. I have two daughters. One is 21 and one is 18. They love animals. They love the land. They love to hunt. They love to fish. One is going to be a nurse soon, finishing her degree at a university. Uh, another daughter is going into biochemistry. Every farmer, every parent would like to see their the next generation keep it going. And... Whether that'll happen, I don't know. I think my uh, children, I think they see the long days. They see the struggle that you make. I oftentimes wonder if if I would want them to do what I'm doing. I, I don't think that they would make the money that they would need to do. I think they'd, again, they'd have to have a, they'd have to have a separate income to do something else, but I can also see that they would have animals. They really like to be involved in the whole aspect of animals on the farm, whether it be chickens or pigs and beef cows and goats and sheep. I mean, we've had all sorts of animals here on the farm through the years. But I also, they also are smart enough to realize that I need a regular job to make that happen because you're not going to make it farming. Thanks again for sharing your story, John. If you want to support John and his work at Lee Farms and beyond, or find out more about the many things that he does, we're happy to connect you. Just email me at grassland2.0podcast at gmail.com. I'm Corey Blant, and this has been yet another episode of The Grasscast, Stories on Pasture. The Grasscast is a project of Grassland 2.0, for more info, check out our website, grasslandag.org. Time for thank yous. First, to Case Wheatley, who was a huge help with production of this episode. To Michael Bell, who continues to support the Grasscast in ways big and small. To Hannah Cass, an extra important member of our team. And this week, a special thank you to Rod Ofti, 
who's been a part of the Grassland 2.0 team since the beginning and helped us to connect to John for this week's interview. We also want to give a special shout out to members of the grazing community in Wisconsin and beyond. So many of you have spoken with us and shared your experiences. We are humbled by your knowledge and generosity. Come back for another Stories on Pasture episode soon. And keep your eye on the feed. We've got some exciting new stuff in the pipeline.